This episode of the Pride and Protest podcast was recorded on Wangal land. We acknowledge that this is stolen land, sovereignty was never ceded, and we acknowledge all elders past, present, and emerging. Decolonization is work that we should all be considering as activists because without the emancipation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, there is no emancipation for the working class as a whole. Hello. This week's episode of the podcast is something that we're going to do throughout the time that the sex work reading group is running. What we want to do is after every two reading groups, we just want to do a little summary of what's been spoken about and some ideas that have been thrown around just as a way for anyone who doesn't have the ability to participate can engage with some of the ideas that have come from it. Or if people want to come in at any point, they can listen to a couple of takeaways that we've had either supplementary to the readings or as well as doing the readings yourself. So, so far we've had two sessions. The first week we were looking at the first chapter of Playing the Whore by Melissa Gira Grant, the first chapter of a Gregor Gal book, who is a studier of sex work unionization and some information on police entrapment in Queensland of sex workers. And in the second week, we focused on decriminalization, how that came about, as well as ways that different attitudes around sex work changed during the 60s and 70s when things like feminism and different movements started to emerge through the left. So today to discuss those two weeks of reading is myself. My name is Charlie. I'm a Pride in Protest member and I'm also a sex worker and I have with me Evan. Hi, my name's Evan. They, them, theirs. Pride in Protest member and just came from a JSP appointment today, but I'm an early childhood educator and training, I guess. So I don't know, interesting position. <laughs> yes, it is an interesting position. We both have gendered labor jobs in very different ways, but helpful to think about their connections, actually. So yeah, Evan, I think I might let you kick off on the first week because I set the readings, but I wasn't able to come. Tell us a little bit about what was spoken about in terms of relationship between the police and sex workers, and also a kind of introduction to thinking about what does unionization mean for sex workers? Yeah. So one of the key concepts that we discussed from playing the whore was the idea that people are always on. So a sex worker is understood to always be on the job and women who are not sex workers and People of varying gender identities who are not sex workers are understood to always be on the job, whether they're sex workers or not. And how this is a form of like social policing and social coding that results in quite awful whorephobia and sexism. And this expands out to police entrapment, who always try to interact with sex workers effectively as bodies to be mistreated. I think a really good example that can be invoked, while Melissa Grant does it with much more justice than I could, there is the really salient example that in the United States, if you're a trans woman of color who walks the streets and say you have a condom, then in the eyes of the police, you are a sex worker. And if you are a sex worker, you're prone to harassment, you're prone to crackdowns, police corruption. And it's worth noting how this is used overall to control the freedom of movement of women and queer people. And so that's one of the key concepts that we did discuss with the Melissa Grant reading. In terms of Gregor Gall and his work, some of the stuff that we fleshed out was unpacking what is the distinction, say, between decriminalization and legalization in the eyes of sex workers? And then in understanding decriminalization, you know, why would a socialist perspective be in support of decriminalization. We, as socialists, can take two perspectives, a perspective of abolishing sex work under capitalism or a perspective of transforming sex work under capitalism. 
the view that we were generating in response to Gregor Gull's work, which is the position that he takes as well, is as socialists, while we acknowledge that like wage slavery is exploitative, you know, the boss makes money off of the worker and no one likes having that boot on their face. It's not kinky when a boss does it. But when it comes to it, we don't advocate for people being put out of jobs. Actually, we stand with people for unionization, even though that is in some ways a compact between labor and capital, and stand with people for better work, better conditions, better wages. And I'll put an example myself, you know, I've supported casino workers who've been going on strike and construction workers and been fighting for green jobs for miners. So this is like a transformational perspective. And this is a perspective that we should take in terms of sex work in that the idea that it is not desirable to attempt the abolition of sex work under capitalism, but rather to fight alongside sex workers who are putting the call to have their labor free from harassment and control by the police, such that it is on their terms and their wages. No one should have the police as their de facto boss. And in fact, I would hope no one has to have a boss, but that maybe is a bigger conversation. This is in contrast with the abolitionist perspective, which puts as its goal abolition of sex work with the assumption that that therefore leads to the emancipation of women generally. And this is something that we found particularly wanting as a political strategy, since it seems to put the abolition of sex work before the emancipation of women. And the abolition of sex work while under capitalism means it comes before the abolition of the police. So who's going to impose that abolition? And we've seen from many attempts, whether it's in the Nordic countries, whether it's in Cuba or China, that strong governments attempting this so-called abolition of sex work don't really work. And in fact, it just becomes another stick with which the police can beat you, literally. So I guess that was our first week, as well as some explorations of like what that actually means in practice with legalization in Queensland, which is really shit. And I'm really hopeful that the government can move to a decriminalization model sometime soon. Yeah. And I think just to, you know, throw some ideas that I had had when I put it together was what Evan was saying at the start of how, you know, what, what the policing of sex work does is that it embodies being a sex worker into the person. It means that they are always in the eyes of the police or anyone else who who is, you know, operating with a carceral logic is that they're always, they're always a prostitute. They're always a whore. They're always a sex worker. And actually like that is the essential thing that stops the ability to see them as a worker, because the way that we understand sex work as workers is that we sell our time. So it is not our body that we give. It is our time that we give. You know, I have a booking for an hour. In that hour, I'm doing that work. And if policing is the thing that then embodies sex work, then it obscures that relation. And it means that the ability to see sex work as work is obscured by that. So it's one of the necessary things to change to actually understand sex work from the from an industrial perspective, from a work perspective, and from a union perspective. Yeah, on the abolition question, you know, personally, I had asked myself this question for a long time until I realized it was the wrong question to ask for all the reasons that Evan had given, you know, again, it's the same thing you want, you you don't go into a fast food restaurant, you don't go into McDonald's, if you personally feel like that fast food as an industry shouldn't exist under communism, and try to abolish McDonald's workers, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and I think that 
that identification as worker question is really important. Something that a number of the readings do stress is sex work discourse, like sex work as work and understanding it as labor and labor power. And it's also important to organize alongside that basis. And so something Gregor Gall does really well is unpack all the different cases of unionization and discussing how sex workers have power at work and the power to work together quite effectively. And this is something that we've been exploring and hinting at like some of the possibilities in the sense that there is actually a strong history of unionization around the world of sex workers, particularly in places where it's decriminalized. But there are sex worker unions in the Philippines, for example. There was participation in the what was then known as the Miscellaneous Workers Union, now the United Workers Union, where sex workers had their own branch and organized. Um, and you can find an article in Marie Claire from like the 80s about that. So there's a long history of that unionization. And I would say that that's probably the next step after decriminalization is how can people defend their rights at work together? Because just as, you know, you can't walk into a, a retail and fast food restaurant and be like, well, you know, the best way to secure rights is to abolish it. You can't just leave it as is either. And, you know, as socialists, we argue, you know, you should join, say, RAFWU and like get together and do your EBA and fight and then get so bolshy from fighting around your EBA that you then like really fuck everything up, you know? So, yeah, I think that was like really, good thing to reflect upon and I guess tease out you know how does that work for sex workers in the current Australian context you know is that by our current modes of organizing or new ones I guess that's up for sex workers to decide yeah and I guess that's the thing that's going to be tackled at the very next reading group is the the chapter from goal is specifically all the instances in Australia where unionization has happened unfortunately at this stage there is no union that is currently representing sex workers although there are peer-to-peer services and organizations like Scala Alliance which the article also talks about actually what is the relationships between those organizations and unions which is actually a little bit more nuanced than Scala Alliance is not a union and unions are a union so we'll be able to explore that. In New South Wales, and this is getting on to the next week that we did, we are very fortunate in New South Wales to be under a decriminalisation model. So in Australia, the two states that have a decriminalisation model is New South Wales and the Northern Territory. Across the ditch as well, Aotearoa does have a decriminalisation model as well. And what we explored in that week, and I guess is really worth kind of thinking about, especially thinking about states around Australia that are going through the process of arguing for decriminalisation. I mean, they all are, but they're all at different stages. Victoria is in a stage where there is a lot of movement in actually getting it up, moving away from the current legalisation model that they have, is the question of how did decriminalisation in New South Wales come about? What were the arguments that were put forward? And then what is the relationship between those arguments and for us, the question of unionization, the question of workers' rights. So when sex work was coming around to being decriminalized under the RAND government in New South Wales, there were a lot of different perspectives as to why sex work should be decriminalized. And I would say that they would fall in kind of two broad camps. The first camp is, I would say, from a perspective of civil liberties, so a more liberal approach. So the Council of Civil Liberties basically said that the reason why sex work should be decriminalized is the argument that, you know, what people 
people do behind closed doors is their own business. You know, it was a question of people's private interests, right? Their ability to be private citizens. And then on the other side, there were some women in the Labour Party who did come out with a, I would say, a somewhat softer version of the sex workers work argument. And the reason why I said this is softer is, and in the reading it says that, that the particular MP was attacked from both sides, as in from the left and the right. And they did put some conditions on how they were saying it was work by making a, I guess, saying that on the edges of sex work was things like human trafficking, which in today's sex work discourse, we reject the relationship or the apparent relationship between sex work and human trafficking and make a really clear distinction between those two things. So, you know, the statement by those in labor was still tempered by this apparent connection to human trafficking. It was kind of a broad kind of united front of different women's groups and different other political groups that basically came to the consensus that decriminalization should happen. You know, this was as broad as Labor, the New South Wales Council of Liberties and the country's women association, which is particularly crazy to think about. And so what ended up happening is decriminalization did get passed through, I would say, a somewhat uneasy coalition of individuals who were coming together for different reasons to have decriminalization. I think the problem here is that you can see from when decriminalization happened that kind of the question of the, the question of labor rights has in New South Wales specifically has somewhat stagnated. You know, we would hope if that we consider decriminalization as an industrial win, that some form of industrial action could follow soon after it. And I think the difference of the arguments that were made about decriminalization can partly make us understand why that didn't happen. You know, when it comes to the argument of what people do behind closed doors, actually what that fundamentally does is that it embodies what sex workers do as a sexual experience you know when people say what people do behind closed doors they think of their innate personal sexuality and actually they're framing sex work as an innate personal sexuality rather than being on the job being on the clock so again it's kind of repeating these ideas of what sex work is as some sort of cultural some sort of embodied experience that a woman or someone else would have rather than fundamentally understanding it as work yeah i think that's really interesting because when i was doing the reading it reminded me a lot of popular front politics in the CSG campaign. That's coal seam gas and not the campaign to have it, the campaign to stop it in the sense that there's all of these broad interests, you know, from businesses, horse breeders, farmers, vineyards, First Nations, elders, random NGOs, and the list goes on and they all have slightly different interests in backing something. And it is no surprise to me that like those interests who'd frame this as like an element of sexual expression, you know, as if this is just another element in the freedom of sexuality, which in some ways it is, but that's not really the entire picture. And it really explains in some ways why, because Charlie mentioned the stagnation, and I think a good example of that stagnation is I don't think a number of those people who are passionate about fighting for freedom of sexual expression, who might be on the more conservative side of politics, I would definitely say none of them care about migrant sex worker rights, for example. They're not going to be like, oh, well, like, you know, we want to make sure that no one's wages are stolen. They don't care about that. And I guess that's the nature of popular front politics when you have people with such divergent class interests getting behind something they can only have a really narrow like specific reform agenda and i think in this case like the categories that charlie is breaking apart 
I really sort of think about because I know for people in my mum's generation, you know, who are hospitality workers and construction, corruption, for instance, was this really big thing. And there was a lot of like popular interest, like how do we make the police less corrupt? And so there were a lot of people who like for them, sex work is a justice issue. There are people for whom sex work is a health issue and there are people for whom like sex work is like this sexual expression issue and then you have people for whom it's a labor issue and none of these are like deny or negate the other or at least not to my understanding but it really does show like depending on how you come at this issue like you're going to want to have different outcomes and for different people. And it, I guess it's also interesting to see now that like the divisions that are mentioned, you know, about like, you know, being criticized from both the left and the right kind of remain. When um, I was looking at the vote in South Australia for decriminalization, the Labor Party was split kind of 50-50 on it. And it wasn't even amongst Labor left, Labor right lines, like as many Labor left are like against it as for it and same with the right, which I think is quite telling about politically how things have gone, which I guess raises the power like, you know, raises the question, you know, where does power come from? And what is the interest that like will really push things for sex workers? Like, is it like going to be this combination of interests? Will it be another popular front or will it be a working class experience generated by sex workers on their own terms? I would really support that latter one. It sounds like quite fantastic from what I'm reading, but I guess Charlie might want to speak more on that. Yeah. I think when we talk about United Front we have to talk about united for what reason i mean popular front as an ideal when people talk about popular classes i mean traditionally it's understood as popular classes are the working class because that is who predominantly makes up society and so when we do it on questions of abolition and the question of police abolition uh, you know as essentially having to abolish capitalism to achieve it, then you can start to see the connections. So I kind of would put it in two ways. You know, there's this general interest in abolition of of the police under capitalism, but then there's also the idea that like police oppression of sex workers is is fundamentally a labor issue as well, which is, you know, why we make the connection saying that sex workers shouldn't have bosses, whether it's a brothel owner or whether it's the police. And fundamentally connecting them as a form of suppression of labor is important. You know, you can have these united politics from an abolitionist stance where police have a multi-form agenda, whether it's policing women, policing Aboriginal people, people of color, policing migrants. You know, that is a form of united front politics that we should be engaging in understanding us as all fundamentally being part of the working class, but also to understand it purely as a labor problem, being that when police are suppressing the the labor of sex workers, it just makes all the issues that they have already under, you know, working for bosses even harder. It means that they can't work safely. It means that in a brothel, they're subject to being threatened by clients. It's, it's more likely that they're to experience sexual assault or violence. It means that it's easier for bosses to exploit them. If we argue for it in this way, not only do we understand it as a labor issue and an issue that should be in the interests of all the work 
working class, but it also says that, well, once we reach decriminalization for sex workers and the police's boot is off sex workers' neck, well, actually, you need to go somewhere from that. You can't just say, like, that's it and that's the only thing that you can do. When you fundamentally understand it as a labor problem and the police exacerbating it as a labor problem, then unionization is the most logical next step. You have to expand the thinking out in that way in order to actually reach the emancipation of the class. Yeah, and I might add something that it's worth like just framing because we're using the terms like united front and popular front and it's worth clarifying that they're different things. When we say like popular front, that means like working class people agitating over reform in alliance with middle class or bourgeois organizations. And so the example, like there were even religious organizations, I think invited to a forum about decriminalization back in the day. I think Fred Nile might've spoken at it, which is kind of disturbs me but I guess in some ways that's an example of a popular front whereas a united front is based around like workers and like social democratic forces and like revolutionaries so it's like much more clearly coming from the most popular class, the working class, and can actually move beyond just a single reform in my mind. So it's worth keeping that in mind. Worth people thinking about that, you know, in application to other campaigns, like, you know, what's won and why, and whose interests are served in that process of winning. And I think that's a really good thing to think about, like, in whose interests, like, are we fighting for decriminalization, like, to unpack that relationship? Because when we're trying to deal with cops, like, we don't just want nicer cops, we don't just want friendlier cops actually we want cops out and this question of like decriminalization does need to probably be couched in a like broader anti-carceral politics because there are a whole lot of issues that need to be dealt with in the sense that you can decriminalize something but then what happens when you organize a strike I'm not sure what that looks like in terms of sex workers you know maybe it's people doing an action to demand that OnlyFans like doesn't take so much commission That's just an idea off the top of my head. But, you know, police crush strikes all the time for every kind of working class person. And I think they're probably going to do the same to sex workers. So, like, if sex workers are going to be precarious, like, the police are going to take advantage of that to attack industrial action as well. And I imagine that they'd particularly focus on sex workers from marginalized groups. And I think of, like, many migrant sex workers who I imagine, but I don't know for sure, probably in unzoned, like, places of work which, you know, you could have councils that are really a problem there too. But yeah, just like some things to think about, like, you know, how things are formed, how those alliances go and like, what does that mean really? But hopefully like the union question can start clarifying some of those because there's a whole lot of history to research and explore. Yes. OnlyFans takes 20%, by the way. It's worth people thinking about those kinds of, well, I mean, sex workers are, you know, considered independent contractors for a lot of their work so the kind of the the gig economy and the way we think about you know things like uber and menulog and all those kinds of services actually we should think about sex work in in the same way but sex work is a very diverse field and the upcoming the upcoming readings that we're going to do highlights just how diverse the field is and a lot of specific issues that come with unionizing sex workers that are that are particular to the industry. But it is also really worth thinking about, you know, if we are talking about sex work as a labor issue, you know, like how do other unions interact or potentially interact with sex worker unions? You know, uh, the upcoming reading um, talks about a lot of the reticence of the union in Victoria that they had to having sex workers as part of the union. So it's worth thinking about whatever industry you're in, you know, what is what is the relationship going to be like 
between rank and file workers, you know, perhaps you could be in a position where you're going to demand your union to accept sex workers or support sex workers in their unionizing efforts. So it's not just, you know, our relationship with a potential union. It's a relationship between everyone who sits under unions. And that's worth thinking about. So I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Charlie. We hope to see you at the next reading group. It will be on Zoom this time because of the New South Wales COVID situation. So it will be good to have people come in from different states as well because the laws are different. So it will be good to hear different perspectives around so-called Australia on sex work. Hope to see you there. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you would like to find out more about Pride in Protest, you can go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Pride in Protest, or on Instagram, we are on pride.in.protest.